Good evening. I'm Joseph Martinez, and welcome to Dead Time Stories, a podcast dedicated to telling just that, short, scary stories. Tonight, we are proud to share with you eight lethal legends inspired by tales from around the globe. Now, please forgive me. I can take you no further. But your stories lie just ahead. Bundle up and brave the snow. Your host for the evening awaits. Do be careful, though. Deadhead can be... psychotic. Godspeed. Inspired by urban legends from around the world, translated for your delicious little ears. Our first tale comes from Russia. Samara tells her story titled, Sir Sleepless. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. My grandfather always kept his promises, and now I would keep mine. Before he died, I promised I would learn to read and write Russian. It was his first language, and I knew how important it was to him. After the funeral, I went to his house to decide which of his things I wanted to keep and which things I would sell or donate. I was cleaning up his desk when I bumped a rear panel and discovered a hidden compartment. Inside the dusty old compartment was a paper notebook that looked about 100 years old, Definitely from the early 1900s. Painstakingly handwritten on the cover was the title, For Anastasia. Anastasia was my grandmother. I found my grandfather's diary, I exclaimed. Right then, I knew exactly how to keep my promise. I would learn Russian by translating my grandfather's diary. My grandfather's mental health had deteriorated quickly in the end. My last memories of him were of his raving madness. Him screaming about someone named Sir Sleepless. It was comforting to discover his well-written words when he was young and strong and had his sanity. Best of all, this diary was dedicated to my grandmother and the love he had for her. First things first, I examined the cover for any other clues into the place and time the diary was written. I found what looked like an address and a quick Google search revealed something shocking. This diary was written from a Russian prison. This revelation took my breath away. My grandfather was the most kind and generous man I had ever met. I'd seen him give money to the needy and rescue stray injured animals. Prison? I wondered. What secrets will I be unlocking by reading this hidden diary? I loved my grandfather, and I was convinced there was nothing in the book that could change that. He was gone, and his past could not harm me. Or so I thought. I was wrong. 
The first lines in the notebook were from the last stanza of the famous Robert Frost poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. I, too, had promises to keep, so I pressed on into the old foreign text. I will make you proud, Grandpa, I said to no one. On the next page was a note that read, To my love, my life, Anastasia. I made a promise to you I would return, and it is a promise I will keep. I have found a way out of these prison walls. I have volunteered to participate in a sleep experiment. The scientists require us to keep mandatory notes on our well-being during the test, so if I do not reach you, this notebook will. Men have told tales of the horrors that go in that secluded dark laboratory, but no amount of pain, sleeplessness, or nightmares could keep me away from you. In 30 days, I will have my freedom. In 31, we will be together. Love, Lev. Lev was my grandfather's name. In Russian, it means lion. The next page read, Day one. I lay in my bed ready for sleep. I'm in a small room with four other men. I recognize them as killers and thieves. Bad men. Why do evil people always talk so much? Our room has no windows and the one way in or out is secured with an airtight seal. A red gas is being pumped into the room via a duct in the ceiling. We're told to relax and inhale. Tough, though. The gas smells like rotten eggs. The next entry. My tiredness has vanished. Quite the opposite of how I felt 20 minutes ago. I am now wide awake. I feel an energy in my veins like something wild and powerful is happening. This must be how Superman feels. The others feel it, too. Luca is punching the walls with his bare fists. He bleeds, but says he feels no pain. His hands are surely broken. The next pages were filled with beautiful poetry and the dreams that would come true once he was free to be with my grandmother. These were private thoughts I will not share here. But on day five, things took a surprising turn. It read, Day five. The room is as quiet and still as the grave. No one speaks at all. We watch. Two men have barricaded themselves in corners of the room and spy on the rest of us from their dark hiding place. I am content to stay here with you, Anastasia. Again, there are pages of text that are inappropriate to repeat here. I will say that it seems Grandfather Lev believed that Anastasia was actually in the room with him, that he could physically touch her and communicate with her. According to the notes, this was his 145th hour without sleep, so I guess that explains the hallucinations. Moving on. Day 9. Luca has not stopped screaming for hours. I assume it's because the feeling has returned to his hands and now he is paying for punching the walls for days on end. His hands are a little more than crunchy, blood-filled sacks. A doctor should really come and take them off. The smell is terrible. Dimitri has stopped using the toilets and has taken to smearing his feces on the walls. The two men hiding under their beds are not better off. Grisha has blocked the one-way mirror so the doctors cannot see in. Feofan hasn't been seen for days, though I can hear him moving down there. I have not slept a second in nine days and the gas continues to be pumped in. 21 days until this experiment is over. 22 until I see you in real life. My grandfather writes nothing for days. The next entry is on day 13. It reads, I have lost what is now. Has it been minutes since my last entry or lifetimes? I was in a kind of wide-awake coma where a doctor came in and took care of us. He wore a dark hat, 
sunglasses, a mask, and heavy coat. He was a miraculous man called Dr. Sleepless, who removed Luca's useless hands, coaxed Fiofan out of hiding, allowed Grisha to sleep, and ended Dimitri's misery, all without saying a word. To me? He only tipped his hat and left the room. The instant he left, a second doctor called in over the intercom system. He said, Lay flat on the floor with your hands behind your head and your fingers interlocked. You will be set free. I did it, Anastasia. I did it. That's where the diary ends, and God, I wish my story did too. But ever since I translated the diary, I have been unable to sleep. My husband and kids know something is wrong with me, and I've locked myself in my room to protect them. The man my grandfather described, Dr. Sleepless, has been visiting me. He showed me that my grandfather did not help those men. My grandfather killed them all with his bare hands and stuffed what he could of them down the drain. Dr. Sleepless says I will do horrible things too on my 13th day of no sleep. Ready for bed, cadavers? Me neither. No rest for the wicked, as they say. (laughs) Hang around through the next break. We're just getting started. Our next legend comes from Japan and is told by an outcast named Zero who learns the hard way that alone is worse. Crowds have always made me nervous. Now, I can't be alone. Ever. I wasn't always a loner. I once had a beautiful girlfriend and lots of friends. But I took it all for granted, and they left, one by one. Before I knew it, I was all alone. I told myself I was happier this way. But I was lying. I embraced my loneliness and took a job working at night. I ordered only delivery food and never answered my phone. I got good at being alone. It became a game. How long could I go without seeing another person? My record? 26 hours. Not easy to do in Tokyo. I had to take strange, desolate routes home and avoid public transportation. It was on one of these long, dark walks home that I found a surgical mask floating in the wind. I caught it without even thinking. I looked closer at the mask and saw that it was covered in blood. I tossed it away, mortified, and then I turned the corner. Hundreds of bloody masks rained from the sky. When I looked up to see where they were coming from, I saw her. A beautiful woman hung halfway out of the fifth-story window like a life-size rag doll. She let the wind take a pile of surgical masks from her hands, and they wafted through the city. Hey, you! I screamed. What are you doing? This is disgusting and illegal. I'll call the cops. She didn't flinch. She just stared. At this point, I started thinking, she's dead, or worse, murdered. Someone shoved her through the window and she bled to death. I'm cursing a poor dead woman when I should be calling the cops. And then, she pointed at me. As she began to speak, I never wanted to see someone, anyone more than right at that moment. I did not want to be alone. 
Then my prayers were answered. A policeman on foot patrol came around the corner and I startled him. He gave me a dirty look and told me to head home. I was happy to oblige. As I left, I looked up at the woman. Of course, she was gone. The image of that woman pointing at me haunted my dreams, and it was all I could think about at work the next day. She was so disturbing and so beautiful at the same time. Why did she point at me? Did, did she need something to, to ask me a question? I decided tonight I would leave extra late and take a new, super secluded way home. I took a shortcut where I was sure to see no one. It was a busy street of bodegas during the day, but at night, everything was closed up. No one had a good reason to be there at night. It was a total ghost town. One downside to this way is that there were no lights, so I used my phone light to see. In the middle of the block, I saw something that made my blood turn to ice. A bloody, surgical mask. One more downside to this way home, there are only two exits off the street, the way in front of me and the way I came. The next question on my mind was, which direction was she hiding? I searched behind me. I searched in front of me. She could be anywhere. And then a light bulb went off. The double doors next to me were chained. I pulled the doors open as far as I could and squeezed between them. I found myself in a pitch black arcade. Luckily, I knew where I was. I just had to follow the path all the way through to the other side and I'd be spit out on the next block, meters from my apartment. Feeling like I just escaped my fate, I jogged through the arcade. I was almost at the exit doors when I heard a chain clank from where I had just come in. She was coming for me. I needed to get to the exit immediately. These doors were a much tighter squeeze. I was stuck. Then a voice came from behind me. She did have a question. Am I beautiful? I was shaken, but she was so pretty with her large, sweet, almond eyes and her shy manner. Yes, I whispered back. She tittered and asked, How about now? She untied her mask. It fell to the ground. Her mouth was split from ear to ear. I closed my eyes tight and wished her away, but I could feel her getting closer and closer and closer. And then, a voice from behind me asked, Need a hand, little guy? Some big drunk grabbed me and pulled me through. His girlfriend laughed and they began to walk off. I looked back through the exit and I saw her, smiling, sinking back into the darkness like a crocodile into a swamp. Her grin seemed to ask, Maybe next time. I shot to my feet and caught up with the couple. You guys want to grab a drink? It's, it's my treat. They agreed and we've been friends to this day. Imagine that. Kuchisake Ona bringing people together. I promise the next story won't have such a happy ending. This one comes from the USA and might hit a little too close to home. Roland shares his story. The fifth roommate. I've always avoided conflict. And then one night, it saved my life. (laughs) 
I was young, dumb, and broke. I had just graduated college, and the only place I could afford was a small three-bedroom house with four roommates. We all learned early on that it was best to stay out of each other's business and each other's ways. It was actually pretty great. We all had such different schedules that I had the place to myself a lot. We each respected the rules, clean up after yourself, be quiet after 10 p.m., and don't eat someone else's food. And it worked. One afternoon, I had to run home on my lunch break, and I found some white dust all over the hallway floor. I called out to the house, but, you know, no one was home. It wasn't my mess. I wasn't going to clean it up. My first instinct was to leave a polite but firm note on our house whiteboard. And I thought better. Whoever left the mess must have had good reason. I didn't want to rock the boat, so I cleaned it up. The next day, I came home from lunch again, and I was struck by an awful smell. I'm talking putrid, like a soiled baby's diaper stuffed into a rancid fish. It was coming from our trash can, so I held my breath and opened the trash can lid to find a pile of dead rats rotting in the trash can. I almost puked. I ran the trash bag outside, and I dumped it. This was too big of a deal to let slide. So I left a note on the whiteboard in big passive-aggressive letters, dead rats go in outside trash. I felt good about the message and headed for my room when I found more white dust in the hall. It was less than yesterday, but I'm sure I cleaned it all up. This house was going to hell in a handbasket. I headed into the kitchen to get the broom when I passed the whiteboard message and... It had been erased. Who's home? I called out. Is this all some joke? Very funny. The only reply I received was silence. Well, I'm not cleaning your mess anymore, I yelled and I stormed out of the house. I got home from work late that night and everyone in the house was already in their rooms. Good, I thought. I don't want confrontation this time of night or any time for that matter. I jumped in bed and tried to fall asleep when... Someone started stomping around the house, and I mean downright bouncing off the walls. I felt like the roof was going to cave in. Whatever, I thought, you know, maybe Ashley's practicing her dance routine. I'll give her ten minutes before I say something. An hour later, she was still dancing. I kept my mouth shut, but I knew I couldn't stay there. I had work in the morning. I, I got up and I went to my girlfriend's apartment. On my way out the door, I passed a cryptic message written on a community whiteboard. Tonight was all it said. It gave me a chill. It was written in that disturbing, psychotic way serial killers only seemed to know. I shook it off, locked up, and left. Came home early the next morning, around 6 a.m. I unlocked the door and headed for my room when I saw the strangest thing. The bedroom doors were open and there were wet footprints all through the house. I peeked into the first room and found Ashley stabbed to death in her bed. I stumbled out into the next room to get help, but Marissa and Jake were carved up in their beds too. I ran out of the house and called the police. Detectives told me what had happened, and all those strange things were explained instantly. We had a fifth roommate. A deranged, homeless man was living in our attic, and last night he killed everyone and left. The white dust I kept cleaning up, drywall dust from the attic door being moved. 
poor Roland. He never got to meet his bunkmate. The killer really sounds like a shop cookie. Speaking of cookies, grab a snack. When we come back, we'll be heading for jolly old England. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Have you had your snack? Excellent. Our next tale will make you think twice about ever eating again. <laughs> Agnes is trying to lose some weight when she discovers the too-good-to-be-true Banana Blaze diet. I love food. That's why I was on the diet in the first place. But after what happened, I refuse to eat anything that doesn't come prepackaged. I've always been a full-on girl. Food, fashion, fads, if it's in, I'm in. I never got bogged down in researching things like validity. I mean, really, who has time for that? Susan, my best mate from college, was getting married in three months. To force myself fabulous, I bought a maid of honor dress that was 16 sizes smaller than my current fit. I told you, I'm full-on. Two was finding a diet that was sure to knock off the weight. Something new and trendy. I scoured the internet for minutes when I found it. The Banana Blaze Diet. Bloody perfect. Step three, math. The Blaze Diet promised to burn 10 pounds of lovely lady lumps off my body in a week. With 12 weeks till the wedding, I stood to lose 120 pounds by the big day. I could slide into my size six, no problem. I won't bore you with all the figures, but long story short, I needed 79 kilos of bananas. Around 175 pounds of food for you Americans. I'm not Oprah yet, so I needed to find a massive deal on bulk bananas. After a Craigslist hunt and a short wait, the box of bananas arrived and I was ready to live my best life. I opened the box to have breakfast when I noticed these bananas didn't look quite like any banana I had seen before. They had small white spots all over them, like they were wearing white polka dot pajamas. Must be a designer brand, I figured, and ate one straight away. My transformation had begun. Then Wednesday arrived. I hate Wednesdays. Who doesn't? I was over bananas. The taste, the texture, the shape. I was maxed out. I needed an alternative, and I figured that as long as what I ate had bananas in it, I was gold. I made banana pudding, banana bread, banana cream pie, banana pancakes. I had a friend over, and we drank banana daiquiris. Meg and I were making our second round of drinks when she noticed the white spots on the banana peels, too. No worries, it's just the banana breed, I said. Banana breed, she replied. Agnes, that's mold. I looked for myself, and now that she mentioned it, the white spots did look like mold, and they had definitely grown larger. Oh, it's on the peel. The fruit is fine. She nodded, but declined another drink. Whatever, I thought. I'll be losing weight by myself then. 
That night, I went to bed, but every time I was just about to drift off into dreamland, I'd get a tingling sensation. It felt like someone was gently dusting the tops of my feet with a feather. I'd wake a bit, scratch, and try to fall asleep when I'd get the tingling on my arm or around my mouth. I didn't sleep a wink that night. I lay in bed wondering, was it the mold affecting my nervous system? Mold or no mold, the diet wasn't working. The tingles had been keeping me up for over a week straight, and I was exhausted and stress-eating. I was eight pounds heavier than when I started. I needed a change. For the first time in my life, I was going to do deep research. I hunted down every article on banana mold and bogus banana diets. I spent hours learning about nutrition and exercise. I even mailed one of the polka dot peels to a lab for analysis. It was going to take two weeks to get the lab test results back, so in the meantime, I hid the banana box in my back room, joined a gym, and went vegan. I was feeling great and losing weight. Nothing could stop me. The one thing that stayed the same was the nighttime tingles. Not a week had passed when I got a phone call from a strange number. I answered, and before I could even say hello, the woman on the other end began speaking quickly and with urgency. Are you in your home? She asked. Yes, who? She cut me off. Get the hell out now! I screamed and ran out of the house. As I ran, she explained, This is the lab. That was not mold on your banana. What you saw were egg sacs of a Brazilian wandering spider, one of the most poisonous, aggressive spiders in the world. That tingling you felt at night was them crawling on you. I wonder... What would be tingling your toes while you sleep tonight? Check your snack for spider eggs, then join me at a family tomb in China, won't you? Ah, there you are, awake and well-fed. Our next tale was told by Gan Bao, a man from China who took years to discover his family secret. Ever since I found out what was hiding in my father's grave, people often ask me, what happens after death? I grew up in a safe and loving home. I never knew pain or hunger or fear. I only knew the unconditional love and protection that was provided by my mother, father, and Ai my aunt. I loved my Ai like a second mother. She and I would play games and read together. And every morning, without ever missing a day, she would serve me homemade congee in bed. Life was perfect, and I wanted it to stay that way forever. But life never does. When I was five, almost six, my father passed away suddenly. We buried him in the family tomb and said our goodbyes. The loss devastated the entire house. The next morning, I waited for my IE's kanji, but it never came. I walked into the living room to find my mother sitting in the dark. She was cold and distant. I asked, where is IE, mother? Did she die too? My mother laughed and replied, no, my son, she is still alive, I hope. But with your father gone, we do not need her help any longer. Come, I will make you your kanji. And with that, the life I knew was gone forever. Seven days later, a wailing woke me up in the middle of the night. It was a tortured scream, one that echoed from beyond the grave. I had never heard such a pain before, and it sent me into a panic. I sprang out of bed and ran to wake my mother. But when I came in, 
She was already awake. Mother, mother, there is a ghost in this house, I said. Don't be silly, child. Ghosts do not haunt good people. Have you done something bad? She asked. I thought about it and shook my head no. Then come to bed and get some rest. She opened her covers and I spent the night clutching my mother, waiting to hear that terrible scream again. But it never came. A crash woke me up from a dead sleep. A crumb-covered plate lay broken on the floor beside my bed. Something had knocked it off the nightstand. That's when I saw the shadow. It was hunched and wandering in my room like a blind man, searching the darkness with its hands and bumping into things. Mom? I asked the shadow. It stopped and stared in my direction. It was not my mother. I ran from the room. It became routine for me to sleep next to my mother. And night after night, the ghost never showed. I began to feel safe like I had before. My mother could protect me. She was all that I needed. But as I had already learned, nothing stays the same. A weeping woke me. It came from my room. I listened as the crying came closer and closer. It was coming down the hall, directly to my mother's room. I tried to wake mother, but she was dead to the world. I watched as my door opened, and what I saw left me frozen. A woman with long, dark, ratty hair and shabby clothes crawled on the floor towards me. Her hands outstretched before her, searching the ground for the path to me. She lurched across the floor and said a single choked word. Water. I don't know how long it took me to move, but eventually I found the courage to bring her my water glass. I left it in front of her and hurried to my bed. Her hands searched the floor, and when she found the glass, she was elated. She swallowed the water as if she had been lost in the desert for years. Then, she disappeared. I knew right then how to make this home happy. Every night, I would bring bread and water into my room and leave it on the nightstand. And every morning when I woke up, the bread had been eaten and the water drank. Our home was different than it once was. Different, but still happy. And it remained so for 10 years. Then tragedy struck. I was 15 when my mother passed away. It was the first time in my life I was alone. I took her body to the tomb where my father was buried and said my goodbyes. I opened the heavy tomb door when I heard a meek cry. It was a familiar cry, one I could never forget. I had heard it 10 years ago as a boy when I was visited by the hungry ghost in my bedroom. I shone my lamp into the dark tomb and found I.E. My I.E. was weak and a little more than skin and bone, but she was alive. How did this happen, I cried. I am ashamed to tell you, Gonbao, but your father and I were having an affair. Your mother found out, and when she buried your father, she had me locked in the tomb to starve to death. I hugged her tightly and I asked, But how did you survive? Every night I begged the heavens for food and water. Then one day, you brought it to me. Nothing like reuniting loved ones after a long, dark absence. Fear not, cadavers. We'll be reunited after this short break. When we come back, I'll meet you in Mexico.
This next urban legend comes from Mexico and was told by Maria, who took a long and tragic journey down the Weeping Road. A good mother would give her life if it meant it would save her child. Now that mine have been stolen, I plan on doing just that. I met the love of my life, Jose, in Mexico City. We were both in medical school and had big dreams of moving to the U.S. one day. Of course, life gets in the way of most big dreams. Halfway through school, I gave birth to my twins, Angelica and Fernando. Although the timing couldn't have been worse, I knew the instant they were placed in my arms, there was nothing in this world I wouldn't do for them. Jose got a great job and we moved to a beautiful apartment in the city center. Once the children were old enough, I finished my education and began my own practice. Nothing is ever perfect, but we had each other, and that was all we needed. I remember the day like it was yesterday. It was my birthday. The twins were four. We had just finished cutting the cake when Angelica brought me a card that said, From Daddy to Mommy. She was so excited, I thought she would burst. I opened that card up, and it was a postcard from Austin, Texas. I looked at Jose and said, If you want a third baby, you're going to have to do better than this. He smiled at me and said, that's the view from our new home. I couldn't believe it. It had taken longer than we both hoped, but it was happening. We were moving to the U.S. Jose moved to the U.S. first and got things up and running. Once all the craziness of getting a home ready was settled, I loaded the kids up into our car and set out to make the 935-mile journey to our new home. Now, do you know how to get four-year-old twins 935 miles in a car? Lots of stops. This was going to be fun, I told myself, knowing full well I would live to regret it. I didn't know how right I was. I designed the route with my husband and plotted the whole way on Google Maps and had a backup paper map in case reception was bad in certain areas. We had four stops, San Luis Potosi, Monterey, Laredo, then home to Austin. The kids and I left early in the morning and planned to hit the first hotel just before dusk. Remember what I said about dreams? Fernando stole Angelica's toy, which is when Angelica busted Fernando's lip, which caused me to miss my exit, which... You get the idea. We got to the hotel around 11 o'clock at night. The kids were passed out. I needed a drink. My shitty motel room didn't have a wet bar, but there was a little place to grab a drink in the parking lot. I put the twins in bed and watched them sleep a moment. I'd be gone five minutes max. I blew them a kiss and locked them in the room. The bar was as bad as the motel. It was dark and musky. The crowd was transient, but at least everyone minded their own business. The one thing that calmed me was that the cantina had a giant window that faced my motel room. I watched my door like a hawk as I ordered a mezcal. Mean drink for a nice mother, a woman laughed. It was a memorable (laughs) laugh. A whale, really. I've never heard one like it. There was a beautiful danger to it, like what a thorny rose would sound like. I turned and smiled. How did you know I was a mother? I asked. Honestly, anyone ordering a shot at midnight in those clothes must have just put the kids down. She laughed again. A little voice in my head spoke to me. How did she know you had more than one kid? It also takes one to know one, she followed up. She clinked my glass with hers and smiled. We sipped our drinks. I'm taking a road trip to go see them in California, she explained. She was wearing ripped jeans, a black t-shirt, and a leather jacket. I was wearing a baggy sweater covered in God knows what and teal yoga pants. We are not the same kind of mom, I said. You are way cooler. She signaled the bartender for another round and looked deep into my eyes. 
I can help you with that. Her name was Antonella. She was carefree and charismatic, with wild curly red hair that looked like soft fire. Okay, I probably had one too many. Okay, I definitely had one too many. I lost track of time and I didn't stop her when she leaned in to kiss me. There was something so alluring about her. We kissed and I was jolted by an image of my twins alone in the room. I hurried from the bar without saying a word. Antonella's laugh followed me out. The closer I got to my room, the more sure I became that something horrible happened to my children. I fumbled the lock and cursed myself for drinking so much. In my heart of hearts, I knew behind this door I would find tragedy. Did they try and take a bath and drown? Maybe they stuck something metal into the electrical outlet. I was shaking, but I got the door open to find... My beautiful twins. Sound asleep, just as I left them. I locked the door, jumped in bed, and passed out. The next morning I woke up and felt great. That little bit of alcohol had me sleeping soundly and I laid there relishing the last few quiet moments of my morning. I thought about Antonella and our kiss last night, how I'd tell Jose and he would love the story. But then suddenly a scream came from outside my room. It was Angelica's, I knew it. I sat up to look at where my twins slept and they were both gone. I stood and ran from the door, but it was like swimming through a watery dream. The scream came again and I flung open the door to find Angelica and Fernando playing with Antonella in the parking lot. Look who I found, Antonella laughed. I scooped up my children and I held them tight. Sorry, I thought I could watch the loves while you slept a little more. I ignored her. Kids, how did you get out here? I asked. Fernando opened the door, Mommy, Angelica replied. I relaxed. You know you are not allowed to go outside without Mommy, I scolded. I turned to Antonella and said, thank you for watching them. That's when I noticed she was out of her bad girl clothes and in her uniform. A baggy sweater and teal yoga pants. I hadn't changed. We were matching. I eyed her up and down and said, No offense, but I'm glad to see you don't look cool all the time. She let out her Antonella laugh and smiled. Safe travels. With that, she walked off. Then Fernando scratched Angelica. Time for leg two. We made some great time. The twins were as behaved as four-year-olds could be in a car for five hours, and I pulled over to get some gas. I left the twins in the car and went inside. When I came out, there was a woman with black hair, her face against my car window, peering inside at my children. Can I help you? I stabbed at the stranger. She turned to face me. It was Antonella. She had dyed her red hair black, like mine, and we still wore our matching mom uniforms. We looked like twins. Funny seeing you here, she laughed. I took her by the arm and pulled her off my car. Are you following me? This was a bold question, but it was chilling to see her look exactly like me. I was scared, and for the safety of my children, there was no time to be polite. Maria, she smiled and touched my face. I pulled her further away from my car. Look, I leveled. I have a family, and I'm not into girls. I didn't mean to lead you on. I just got a little drunk, okay? Now you need to stop popping up like this. See you never. I got in the car and waited. Antonella was laughing. She finally got into her car, an old white one, and peeled out of the gas station, heading south. Perfect, I said aloud. We're going north. We got on the road, and I called my husband, Jose. I told him what was happening, and he calmed my nerves. An hour into the conversation, I had pretty much forgot about the whole ordeal. 
That's when I realized I never filled my tank. I was running on fumes. A sign told me the next gas station was in 20 miles. I prayed that we'd make it. I kept Jose on the line the whole time, and we actually made it to the gas station. I hung up with Jose and told him we were going to be fine. I'll call him when we reach the next hotel. I filled the tank, bought some snacks, and got back on the road. Two more hours of driving, and we'd be in Monterey at our cozy hotel I booked as a special treat for us to celebrate the halfway mark. I don't know how long she was following us for, but by the time I spotted her, we were in the middle of nowhere. Panic filled me from head to toe. I instinctively hit the gas. Antonella knew I spotted her, and she closed the gap in her sporty little car. We were on a two-lane highway in the middle of a desert. There was nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. I called the police. Some crazy lady is following us, I screamed. Stay calm, the operator told me. Keep driving and do not stop. Police are heading toward you. She rear-ended us. She's ramming our car, I cried over the phone. Keep moving, I was instructed, and then... black. I don't remember anything that happened after the crash. The next thing I knew, I was waking up. The steering wheel in my chest, the airbag choking me. Through the blood in my eyes, I could see the fire department sawing into my car. Fernando? Angelica? It hurt to talk, but I called to my babies, and I got no answer. They pulled me out and laid me on the stretcher. Are they okay? I begged anyone to answer. All I got were blank stares. My babies, my babies. There were no children in the car, ma'am. I twisted my head to look into the back seats. There were no toys, no snacks, no car seats, no babies. There was no one following her either, I heard one cop tell another. Just then an EMT injected me with something that made me sleep. As my consciousness swam to a better place, I grabbed the EMT's arm and said, Antonella. Antonella, she said. That's La Llorona's real name. The Wailing Woman. The ghost who takes children. One must be vigilant when protecting their children. Whether it is driving cross-country in Mexico or finding mysterious footprints in the snow. Make sure your doors and windows are locked and come find me in the woods of Germany after this. Sorry to drag you out into the cold, but our next story comes from Germany where we found Detective Reingruber's tape recorder and translated his dictation to bring you six dead, no suspects. Detective Reingruber speaking, just arriving at the Hinterkaifeck farm, home to the Gruber family. Schmidt said it's a bad one. It's April 5th, just stopped snowing, thank God. I'm standing in front of a quaint farmhouse with white brick walls and black trim. To my left is an A-frame barn made out of old but good wood. That's where most of the bodies are. Mr. Schlittenbauer is waiting for me. He's the one who discovered the bodies. 
I'm going to get his statement now. Schlittenbauer has informed me that he is the village guide. He knows the town and its people well. He describes the Grubers as a kind and good family. Andreas and Kazilia were the grandparents. Their widowed daughter, Victoria, lived in the house with her two children, Kazilia, seven, and her brother, Yosef, who was two. The family's maid was also found among the dead. Maria Baumgartner, 44. <sighs> On to the handful of witnesses gathered around the barn. Reading off my notes here, coffee sellers came to the farm April 1st, but left when no one responded to the knocks on the windows and doors. Seven-year-old Kazelia Gruber had been absent from school all week, and the entire family failed to show up for Sunday worship. I'm told the maid's sister was the last to see the family alive. Time to talk to her. The maid sister tells me that on the afternoon of March 31st, she escorted the sister to the farm. She stayed a while, witnessed the family go about their everyday business, and then left. Nothing out of the ordinary. According to the coroner, she was lucky to have escaped with her life. The family was murdered shortly after she left. Y yes, sir? You have something to tell me? A neighbor just informed me that strange things occurred in and around the farm sometime before the attack. Six months ago, the family maid quit, claiming she heard strange sounds. She believed the house was haunted. Among other things, Andreas, the grandfather, found a newspaper from Munich on the property. This is unusual because no one in the family reads the news, and in, in fact, no one in the vicinity subscribes to that particular paper. The grandfather also found fresh tracks leading from the woods to the farm. He never found tracks leading back into the forest. Sounds like whoever made them never left. It's time to have a look in the barn. I'm in the barn. It's warm and it's damp in here. Snow leaks through the slats in the roof. The room is full of hay, lots of places to hide. I'm staring at four bodies, both grandparents, their daughter and the seven-year-old granddaughter. It looks like their skulls have been smashed with some kind of heavy tool, perhaps a pickaxe or a mattock. Uh, they were killed one by one, each lured into the barn under some kind of pretense. What could have called them to this death trap? <clears throat> the local police have informed me Carl Gabriel, Victoria's husband, was said to have died in the war. But townspeople have reporting seen a man who fits his description around town, lurking in alleyways, pubs at night. Carl's body was never recovered after the war. Some say he survived. Two-year-old Yosef was rumored to have been the son of Victoria and her father, Andreas. It's well known to the courts and the village that the father and the daughter had an incestuous relationship. Perhaps Carl discovered this and murdered the Grubers in a fit of rage-filled revenge. Hold on, something I said upset Mr. Schlittenbauer. Mr. Schlittenbauer, sir, calm down. Lorenz Schlittenbauer has confided in me that since the passing of his first wife, he and Victoria have carried on a relationship. He says that he's in fact the father of Yosef. I find it interesting that he was the one to discover the bodies. He did disturb the victims at the scene, ruining our initial investigation. Perhaps the family had blackmailed the upstanding citizen with having an illegitimate child, and in response, he slaughtered them in their own home. That would explain why he knew where to find the maid and Yosef in the house. 
Speaking of which, time to look at the final two bodies. The maid and the baby were killed in the same way with the same weapon. What kind of monster would do that to a two-year-old? After investigating the premises, I believe the perpetrator remained at the farm for several days after the murders. Someone has fed the cattle, eaten the entire supply of bread from the kitchen, and recently cut meat from the pantry. Neighbors also reported smoke coming from the chimney all weekend. There's much more to this crime than meets the eye, and it stinks of a case that will never be solved. I'll do my best. Unfortunately, Ryan Gruber never did find his murderer, and to this day, that case is unsolved. However, Ramona, the little girl in our final tale, did catch a killer. You've made it this far, my little cadavers. Gather your strength, and I'll see you in Romania. Well, well, well. Even in these dark, secluded woods, you still found me. The forest is a very dangerous place to be at night. As Ramona shares in her legend, dead stay dead. I loved my Uncle Marius very much, even after he tried to eat me. My mother and father were very mean. I would hide from them so they couldn't beat me. The only person I could trust was my big and strong Uncle Marius. He was the only one who could control my father. I never felt more safe than when I was by his side. He was my lion. He was a talented baker, and every morning before sunrise, I would walk with him through the woods to town where we would sell our bread. Our bread was so good we would sell out before lunch and be home by early afternoon. Thank God, because I never wanted to walk home through the woods at night. Everyone knew the woods were dangerous, especially at night. Grown men had gone missing and their bodies were found drained of blood. No, I would never walk the woods at night. But if I had to, I believed with Uncle Marius, I would survive. Then one night, my belief was tested. Our bread was not selling out like usual, and the sun was beginning to set. Uncle Marius looked worried. We should get going, he said, and we packed up and left. We reached the woods at dusk. Uncle Marius was not his talkative, ambling self. He walked quickly and hardly spoke. There was a rustling in the bushes. Something big. A wolf, I thought. Uncle Marius dropped the bread cart, scooped me up, and we ran. I looked behind us and heard footsteps chasing us, but saw nothing. I closed my eyes and prayed aloud until my uncle laid me in my bed, safe at home. I had my answer. Uncle Marius could not survive the woods at night either. I promised myself I would die before I ever went into the woods at night. Months went by and the nightmare of running from the woods became a distant memory. I had bigger things on my mind. It was time for the fall fair. My uncle and I played games, rode the rides, and stuffed ourselves with yummy food. We left well before sunset and started our walk through the woods home. We were about a mile from home when we heard something in the bushes. Show yourself, my uncle demanded. A shot fired from the trees and it struck uncle in the chest. Two men came from the bushes and tried to rob us. But Marius was like a lion. 
He pulled out his knife and killed both men before they knew what had happened. I begged my uncle to get up. He screamed at me to run. I kept pulling his arm. I was determined to drag him home. Then we locked eyes and he begged me, run, Ramona. That's when I saw them. Two red eyes glowing in the dark, staring at me. It was the largest wolf I've ever seen. And it stood on two legs. Run, my love, were the last words my Uncle Marius ever said to me. I ran as fast as I could, the sounds of hell behind me. I tore into the house and told my father and older brothers what had happened. Without a word, they dropped their heads and went back to their card game. Coward, I yelled at my father. He struck me across the face. I prayed all night and day for God to bring my uncle back alive. At dawn, my father and brothers went into the woods with guns. Uncle Marius did come back, inside his bread cart and wrapped in a sheet. They buried him in the pasture. It didn't matter. I kept praying with the certainty that God would hear my prayers and bring my uncle back. I needed his love and protection. He was my lion. Then, late one stormy night, my prayers were answered. I heard my uncle's unmistakable laugh. I woke, believing it was a dream. Then I saw Uncle Marius in the flesh, sitting on my bed. I was filled with joy and nearly fell into his arms. But something stopped me. Maybe it was the way his eyes glowed red, or the strange smile he had on his face, the way a dog smiles before it attacks. Ramona, my love... Come with me into the woods. I have something to show you. But uncle, I said, I promise to never go in the woods at night. There's nothing to fear in the woods, my dear, he replied. It's beautiful at night. We must leave now. The surprise will be gone at sunrise. Something was wrong. My uncle never begged. I will go tomorrow night, I told him. Just then, my father shouted from the other room. Ramona, who are you talking to? My uncle growled, then leaped through the window on all fours and vanished into the night. My father came in drunk and angry. He asked again, Who were you talking to at this late hour? Uncle Marius, I replied. He begged me to go into the woods with him. My father looked at my dirt-covered sheets where my uncle had been sitting, nodded his head, and left. I woke early the next morning to hear my father digging in the pasture feverishly. A few hours later, a horrible smell filled the house, and I hurried into the kitchen to see where the putrid smoke was coming from. I will never forget what I saw that day. My mother burning a human heart on our kitchen stove. My father simply turned to me and said, That was not your uncle last night. It was a Strigoi, pretending to be your uncle, to lure you into the woods and drink your blood. The only way to stop him was to dig up Marius, cut out his heart, and burn it to ash. I love happy endings. Ramona finally got to see what her uncle was made of. (laughs) It kills me to say it, but our time together is over. I hope you enjoyed our dead time stories, inspired by urban legends from around the world. And do come find me again soon. We have many more tales to share. Sweet dreams, my little cadavers. <laughs>
You've made it through the night. Congrats. Let's get going before that changes. The eight stories you've just heard were written by me, Joseph Martinez. Half of the Martinez twins. The Martinez twins have many frightening tales to share, so please find our award-winning short films on our YouTube channel. You can also find more thrilling stories from Graveyard Shift on Ranker.com, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and connected TV apps. Tonight's production starred Todd Lights, Ari Eastman, Nicole Villela, Benjamin Apple, and Rich Curris, with editing by Andrea Listenberger. I believe you can find your way home from here. Until next time, farewell.